0: Father, we don't do anywhere near enough thinking and appreciation for how much grace really costs, and you are underscoring that for us this morning, and so we pray that you would help us think more deeply and appreciate more fully and joyfully and gratefully how much it costs For us to receive your grace. Help us to see it. In Jesus name. Amen. So recall from a few weeks ago. What we said. About the meaning of that word prodigal. Prodigal. As we often hear it in the name of the parable of the prodigal son. uh, Prodigal doesn't mean lost. It doesn't mean sinful. It means to be exceptionally lavish and extravagant. It means to have spent absolutely everything. And given that definition, it's apparent why we typically refer to the younger son in this parable as the prodigal in the story. Right? He goes off, he blows everything. He's very lavish in his living and he's extravagant. He spends everything. But the younger son isn't the most extravagant character in this story, not by a long shot. The true prodigal is the father. And I want to show you that this morning. I want to show you that from three angles. I want you to see the father's prodigal grace toward the younger son. I want you to see his prodigal grace toward the older son. And then when we see that, when we see that prodigal grace for the the two sons, I, I think we'll be able to better see and appreciate that same prodigal grace for us. So let's start then just with the father's prodigal grace for this younger son in the story. We just read it a moment ago. And although the full revelation of the father's grace for his younger son doesn't really begin to unfold until verse 20, when the younger son returns home, we we get a preview of it at the beginning of the story. So recall the request of the younger son. This younger son goes to his father and he demands... It's more than a request. He demands that the Father give him his share of the inheritance here and now so that he can do what with it? So that he can liquidate all of it and then get as far away as fast as he can from his Father, from his responsibilities, from his family, and go out and sow his wild oats so he can go out and really get his fill of the world so that he can go and treasure the Father's gifts, as it were. More than the father. And recall what we said, that's tantamount to saying. For the younger son to go to his father and demand right now the inheritance is saying what? When is an inheritance given? It's given when somebody dies, right? When the father dies, then the inheritance is given. And so basically, by demanding the inheritance now, you understand the younger son is saying, Father, you're dead to me. I don't want you. I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want to be near you. I just want your money. The relationship is over. You're dead to me. Just give me the cash. There's no love for the father. The father's dead to him. He just wants the money. Okay, so you see how shameful and dishonoring and offensive and deplorable this younger son and his actions are, right? And so now, here's the question. How would a father in this first century context, because remember, Jesus is giving this, to, to, he's telling this parable to people around him who, who understand how, there would be a, a response, a natural response expected from the father in this, in this culture. What would that be? What would the people listening to this have expected this story to unfold next? Okay, Jesus always does this. When he gives parables, he's always twisting things, right? He's always shocking people. He's always moving in a direction you don't see. And that's exactly what he does. What would the father in this first century context have been expected to do in response to a child who does something like that? How would he respond to such an outrageous, shameful, public insult from this youngest son well he would have been expected to deny the request right right basically right that's the most basic say no you're not going to get the inheritance now don't treat me like that he would have been expected to defend his honor he would have been expected to to um, to slap that younger son across the cheek publicly rebuke and ridicule him drive him out of his house and then keep going drive him out of the community to preserve and protect his own integrity and honor. But that is not what the Father does. There's no slap across the face. There's no public rebuke. He's not driven anywhere. Look what happens in verse 12. And, and understand how shocking this would have been for those first century hearers. What does he do? Verse 12, he divided his property between them. He grants the request. He gave him his share of the inheritance. And that decision by a father in that context to give the inheritance would have been in the eyes of those in the community just as shocking, just as outrageous, just as shameful as the son's request for it. So already, here at the beginning, uh, we're seeing not only the father's patience and love for the son, but the cost for the father to be patient and to continue to love his son. In fact, the Greek word for property here is the Greek word bios. So you hear biology or a, or a biography. It's, it's the Greek word life. So literally, the father wasn't just dividing his estate and his money and his legacy. He was dividing himself. His very life. His heart is being written to by his younger son. And he's allowing that to happen. He's absorbing the division within Himself. The Father's first reaction, His first impulse, isn't anger and vengeance. It is grief and compassion. And you understand, that's costly. That's why He gave Him the inheritance. I I, I think the Father knew full well that His Son's plan was never going to work. The Father understood It was not going to work out the way the son planned it. I think the father understood that. I think he knew that this younger son was never going to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in his rebellion, in his greed. He knew that the only way for that younger son to get that, to understand it, was to allow him to see it for himself. I see the Father giving the Son the inheritance as an act of grace. He's allowing the Son to experience the brokenness, the emptiness, the shame of abandoning the Father, of living life autonomously, living according to His rule. He's going to be the master of His destiny. He's going to rule His own life. He's going to be His own king. He's going to do it himself. He's going to find pleasure and satisfaction and meaning and value in the things of this world. And that is disastrous. The Father knows that and he allows the Son to experience it so that the Son could see what it's like to go through life without the Father. So he grants the request so that he can learn that the true treasure is the treasure he just turned his back on. And that all this stuff is so transient and will never satisfy. It. And so already here at the outset of the story, before we even get to the, the response when the father, uh, when the son comes back, we're already beginning to see something of the costliness of the grace of the father for this younger son but really the full revelation doesn't begin until verse 20. So, so the younger son, verse 20, he's on his way back home. Okay, he's, he's hit rock bottom. He's come to his senses. He's coming back home. And now let's look at how the father responds. Verse 20. But while he, that is the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. Just, just watch the verbs here. His father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, first, first one, notice the father sees the son while he's still a long way off. Okay? I don't think that's happenstance. That's not coincidence. He wasn't out bird watching one day. Oh, there's my son. What do you know? What does this imply? It implies that he's looking out for the son. Every day, every, every evening, he, he looks and he checks the field. Is he coming back today? He's longing for the son to return. He's on the lookout. He's waiting patiently and longingly and expectantly for the son to return. And we know that because of what he says. Uh, when his father saw in verse 20, he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, and what's obvious to us in this verse is that the father loves and has compassion for the son. That's, I think, easy for us to, for any reader to drop down and see that. But what's maybe not so obvious is just how much this response, this love and compassion would have cost the father. Every one of these actions in verse 20 would have been viewed as utterly shameful and disgraceful by people in that culture. Every one of them. First of all, you gotta understand, first century Middle Eastern men didn't run. They didn't run. The traditional dress for first century Jewish men was a long robe that came all the way down to the ground. A few years ago we were at the beach and there was a, this is still true today, there was a Middle Eastern man walking through the beach with this long robe, you know, and of course the waves are coming and getting it soaked down at the bottom. And they still wear that. He wasn't running anywhere. He wasn't jogging down the beach. He was walking slowly, almost kind of gliding along. That's how first century Jewish men walked. And and the reason that the robes came that far down was uh, to preserve their dignity. They didn't want to show any leg, okay? And that's why Middle Eastern men don't run because in order to run, you'd have to hike up the robe and gird your loins, as they call it, right? You hike up the robe so that you can go but what happens when you do that? You're exposing the legs. And that was considered to be a shameful thing in the first century. And to a degree today as well in certain cultures. And in first century Judaism, this is so important, they even had rules for it. There were rules uh, governing what you did with your robe. Okay? Um, men were required to always keep one foot on the ground. That was one thing. So you can't run. I mean, you're going to have to get both feet off at some point to run. All right. The priests, the priests weren't able to lift their robes while they're sacrificing. So what's, what's that going to do to their their robes? They're going to be going home that evening blood soaked, right? They can't even hike it up for that. My favorite rule uh, stated that if a bird were to fly up your robe, all right, get the middle get the image. You can't pull the robe up to get rid of the bird. He's got to sit there and you've got to wait till the evening time when nobody will see you, okay? They were serious about this. It was shameful to lift that robe up. No Middle Eastern, first century men ran. It was shameful. It was undignified. But the father runs to greet his son. Out the door with the dignity and the honor of the father. He's going after the son. Because his embrace of the son couldn't get there quick enough and it was more important than the sacrifice of his honor and dignity in that society. But that's not all. It says he embraced him and he kissed him. We've already seen this. In that culture, the father would have expected to do what? Okay, At least if you're going to run out there, tackle him. Okay, And get down and let him have it. Right? Don't, don't embrace him. Don't Give get him a verbal rebuke. Give him a physical rebuke. Send him right back from where he came. For the father to embrace and to kiss the son, that was outrageous. It was unthinkable. It was terribly dishonoring and shaming and costly to the father to be able to welcome his son with such open arms. Jesus' audience, remember, the the scribes and the Pharisees, these these very religious people who were listening to this parable, would have been absolutely outraged with the Father for taking such shame upon himself and for not immediately giving that younger son precisely what he deserved. Rebuke, rejection, exile. But you see, that's, that's what grace is. It's costly. It's not that the the younger son didn't deserve all of that, right? He deserved to be struck across the cheek. He deserved to be rejected. He deserved to be sent right back out of the village. It's just that this compassionate father wasn't willing to give the son what he deserved. In order to forgive and reconcile with his son, the father, the father had to bear the shame. He had to bear the son's guilt and dishonor and rejection. That's grace. And it gets even better when we look at verse 21. And his son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The initial uh, words of the son is, is giving verbal expression to the inward thoughts of the son that he had a few verses earlier back when he was in the pigsty. Look back at verse 19. Compare verse 19 in verse 21. Verse 19 is the younger son's plan for getting back into the family. Okay? So just compare them. What thought did he have in verse 19 that's omitted in verse 21? Verse 19, verse 21, the father uh, he says, "Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you." Okay? We see both of those. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We see that? But then look at verse 19. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Notice that's missing in verse 21. That was the last part of the younger son's plan. Remember what his plan was. Okay? He doesn't fully grasp repentance. He's getting there. He wasn't looking to be accepted back into the family as a son. He was just hoping to make it back in as one of the father's hired servants. You've got to understand what the hired servants were in the first century. The hired servants were even lower than the household servants. There were different servants. The household servants often lived on the estate and were treated basically as family. And he's not even trying to go for that. He's trying to go for the hired servants. It was it was a purely business relationship between the father and the hired servants. They were invited to come one day and to work and then they get paid that one day's wages and then they left. And that's the son's plan, you see. I'll try to get back into the family just as one of those guys. Not as a son, not even as a household servant. I'll I'll be a hired servant. He literally planned to work his way back into the family, not as a son, but as an employee. As a day laborer. He's going to settle his own score. He's going to make restitution. He's going to pay off his debt. But it's almost as though before he can even get it out, the father ends shuts it down, any idea of earning his way back in. Before the son, notice this, before the son even speaks, the father's already running. You see that. He's already embraced him. He's already wrapped his arms around him and hugged him and kissed him and accepted him just as he is. And you think how he might be here. He's probably filthy, unworthy, Disgraceful, dishonored, totally undeserving, and totally loved and accepted. Which is why the son never mentions earning his way back in when he speaks in verse 21. Do you understand why he doesn't mention it? He doesn't mention earning his way back in because why? He's already back in. He's already in the loving arms of the father. He's already reconciled. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing more to be done. He's already accepted. He's already reconciled. He's already redeemed. And look at how that undeserved, unearned acceptance with the Father is underscored in verse 22. The Father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. When he he talks about the robe, not just the robe, but the best robe. You know whose robe that would have been? Who had the best robe on the estate? Father did. Father is covering the filthiness and the shame and and the disgrace of his younger son with his own robe. The ring that gets put on his finger, that's his signet ring. That's an indication that you have full authority and position in the family again. It's like an authorized signature today. It's showing that he is 100% back in the family as a son. And then the shoes, the shoes on his feet, those weren't given to the servants. They were only given to the son. So you get the picture. The father, listen, the father will not accept the son as an employee. He will only accept Him as a son. That's grace. It is totally free to the younger son, but it is not cheap. Do you see what this grace costs the Father? The Father took upon Himself the pain of his son's rejection in order to be able to extend the son forgiveness. I love how Tim Keller puts it. Ordinarily, when our love is rejected, we get angry, we retaliate, and we do what we can to diminish our affection for the rejecting person so that we won't hurt so much. But his father maintains his affection for his son and bears the agony. Forgiveness is always costly. And what we're seeing here is how costly it was for this father. We're seeing how costly was the father's grace for this younger son. But now we're gonna see that it's not just costly for the younger son, it's just as costly for the older son. So re- remember where the older son is while all this is going on. Where's the, where's the older son? He's there. He lives on the estate. He just lives as far away from the father on the estate as he can get, while still technically being on the estate. And recall from last week how the older son reacts to the father's decision to extend grace to his younger brother. He's angry. He publicly refused to attend the celebration of his brother's return. He rebukes the father in public when the father comes out and beseeches him to come And celebrate. He publicly disses the father. He rejects him. He dishonors him in front of everybody. He reveals what's really in his heart. He he reveals what he really thinks about his father. He doesn't love the father. He just wants the father's money. The father was just as dead to the older son as he was to the younger son. Which is why, as we said last week, he is just as lost, just as alienated from the father as was his younger brother. Probably more so. But you see, that's why he needs the father's grace just as much as his lost younger brother. And that is just what he's offered. Look look at how the father responds to that. That treatment by the older son. Look at verse 31 and 32. He says to him that as the father says to the older son after being publicly rebuked and rejected. Look at what he says. Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, so by now, you know what the father would have been expected to do to this older son, right? Would have expected to rebuke him, drive him out, reject him, publicly shame him. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he stands there and he absorbs the offense. He bears the shame. He takes the rejection and the dishonor from the older son in order to be able to extend grace to that lost older son. He reaffirms his sonship, doesn't he? Look, son, you are always with me. In fact, the the Greek word translated son in verse 31 is a different Greek word from the ones that are translated son eight other times in this chapter. It's a more affectionate term. It's a more endearing term. We might translate it, my dear, beloved child. He is underscoring the sonship of the older son. And then he reaffirms his love and commitment. My child, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. He's saying that after being publicly ridiculed and rejected. With visceral hatred. He's extending grace to that older son. And look, what, what more could the father offer? Everything that's mine is hers. And then the most valuable thing. The most important thing the father could offer. He offers himself. You're always with me. All of it is There. For the older son's asking. It's not there for him to earn. Do you see? It's there to be received by sheer grace. It is all free to the older son because it was all paid for by the father. So do you see why the father The father is the true prodigal in this story. He spends everything for the children that he loves. So that his prodigal grace could be extended to his lost younger son. So that it could be extended to his lost older son. And here's here's how this connects to us. And so that it could be extended to you. This morning. I don't know which lost son you most identify with in this story. Maybe as you encounter this story, you see in the lost younger son a reflection of your own lostness and immoralism. Maybe as you look at this lost older son... And how indignant he is that other people get things that they don't deserve. And how they're not getting proper recognition for the things that they have done. Maybe in that, you see your lostness in moralism. Or maybe like me, you see just, you tend to oscillate between the two. Depending on the situation, depending on where you're at in life. You might find yourself more immoral and more moral. But in either case, lost. So I don't know who you see yourself most in, in this story, but regardless of who you most clearly identify with, can you see the love of the father? Can you see the prodigal father in this story and the way that he represents for you the prodigal God who spends everything to go and seek and save lost sinners like us. I hope you can see that. I hope you can trust and treasure the lavish, costly grace that Jesus offers to sinners. It's Jesus who spent everything to save us. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes the judgment, the exile, the rebuke that we deserve. He took that when He went to the cross and died the death we deserve to die. The cost that covers our guilt and shame with His perfect life lived for us. And He gives us that, not on the basis of anything we have done or could ever do to earn our way back, but because of everything that He has done for us by His sheer grace. Do you see that this morning in this story? I hope you can see The God who is not reluctant to forgive those who repent and turn to Him. Jesus is not a reluctant Savior. He doesn't tiptoe toward repentant sinners. He runs at tremendous cost to Himself. To save rebels and wretches like us. Don't run from Him. Don't resent grace. But receive Him in all that He has done for you. And listen, join in a celebration. Join in celebrating redemption. Join in celebrating your redemption. At His table of prodigal grace. Let's pray. Jesus, for eternity, we will be plumbing the depths of what it cost you to save us. There will never be a day in the age to come where we will be able to claim any part of our redemption because it is entirely free For us because it was entirely paid for by you. Help us to more fully see and savor and appreciate and live a life of gratitude for the costly prodigal grace of the gospel. And we pray in your name, amen.